Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm the Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Keely Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. All right, Keely. So you had the interview this week and you spoke with Justin Wall, who is the Chief Revenue Officer of Salon, TV Tropes, and Snopes. Why'd you want to have Justin on? Yeah, so Justin has been a, a great kind of source for me over the past, you know, honestly, few years to learn about programmatic advertising and publishers honestly struggles with what's going on in that uh, area. So we've had a few really great conversations in the past couple of months um, talking about different strategies for, um, you know, uh, third-party cookie deprecation preparedness and, um, you know, using alternative identifiers or, you know, getting into things like uh, supply path um, optimization and even like traffic shaping, which is honestly a term I was not aware of until he and I discussed. So there are all these different kind of elements that um, he is, you know, hands-on with his team working on um, trying to improve programmatic open marketplace revenue for these three brands, um, one of which is a news brand. And, you know, he is kind of bearing witness to a lot of the challenges that, um, you know, we've been covering at Digiday uh, in the programmatic advertising space holistically. So I thought he'd be a great resource um, and, you know, conversation to have on the podcast just to try and touch on all those different areas, touch on a lot of different trends that we're seeing in this space right now and, and get the publisher perspective on a couple of areas that I think, you know, at least on the podcast I've talked about with, you know, other stakeholders, whether that's media buyers or on the marketing side of things. Got it. And then one of the big topics among programmatic publishers these days is cookie alternatives, especially now that Google has put kind of a firmer deadline, at least firmer for now, deadline on third-party cookie deprecation. What's Justin's assessment of the alternate ID space at the moment? Yeah. So uh, we talk about that for a bit and UID 2.0 is the alternative identifier solution that he is most um, focused on. In fact, in another conversation uh, in a story that uh, is going up this week, we look at kind of how UID 2.0 is the only alternative identifier that he's really focusing on at all. Um, So that said, he's doing a lot of testing to see how that authenticated audience that um, is grouped under UID 2.0 or, you know, is is labeled with UID, how that audience is leading to a revenue lift and whether or not that growth in revenue is, is worth then testing across Salon and Snopes. So right now he is anticipating that only like maybe five to 10% of the total readership of these three brands will become like an authenticated user, meaning subscribing or registering, and then um, basically opting in to receiving ads um, that are targeted towards them through this alternative identifier. And so while that is, you know, a decent chunk of readers, his bigger focus is actually trying to find ways to increase the CPMs of non-authenticated users. So we do talk about UID 2.0 and, you know, the struggles that publishers are facing with testing all of these different, you know, alt IDs that are available. But his bigger focus is really on just making more money on the programmatic side, 
even without cookies or alternative IDs in the mix at all. So we get into a lot of these different things, lots of different programmatic deep dives in this episode. So hopefully you guys are ready to learn about some of these concepts very deeply. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Justin, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great this morning. Thanks for having me, Kaylee. Yeah, thanks for joining me. I would love to talk about, basically, over the past few months, we've had a lot of conversations around the state of programmatic advertising and some of the challenges that publishers have been facing in that space, which, you know, is already facing some macroeconomic pressures. And so... There is a lot to discuss in this episode, but before we get into all of that, I'd love to kind of set up a little bit of background for our listeners just to hear about your you know, background uh, in media, in technology, and then also which brands you oversee now as CRO. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm the chief revenue officer for three websites, salon.com, snopes.com, and tvtropes.org. Um, those sites are all owned centrally and operated from a business and development uh, functionality in the center, uh, and they each have their own separate newsrooms or moderators that run them. Got it. And so how long have you been working in media slash, I guess, ad tech area as well? I have been in ad tech and, and media for over 10 years, uh, with Salon specifically starting in 2017. Uh, when we came on board uh, at Salon.com, it was very much a, a business in distress, um, and it was a major tech overhaul and um, revision of its strategy that brought us back into profitability by 2019. Got it. And so um, based on, again, like again, our, our previous conversations, Salon.com uh, was very dependent on programmatic open marketplace, right? Like that was the centralized revenue stream for that brand? Definitely. I, I could be considered a programmatic purist in that sense. Um, when we were looking at the business model for Salon at, at that point, 2017, 2018, it became clear that uh, direct sales weren't succeeding for the brand. And we did a major overhaul to focus purely on open market programmatic. And with that as a fixed strategy for the brand, it really um, centralized everybody's focus into making the most out of what open market programmatic could be. So it got all of our attention for many years through present um, to just kind of be as effective and, and productive for a media property that it could be. Yeah. And that's, I think, a little bit of like of a surprise too, maybe for some of our listeners, given the struggles that um, news organizations have had with the programmatic open marketplace and um, specifically challenges around brand safety concerns and uh, advertisers just being very um, picky with everything from like URLs to general classifications of content that might not be considered breaking news, but still kind of get funneled under that category. Um, I guess, have you experienced those challenges with, you know, brand safety and, you know, you mentioned reaching profitability in 2019, um, just two years after coming on. Has there been any kind of, I guess, negative impact or problems with being so programmatic dependent as a news organization the past, you know, let's call it three years? So Salon has definitely been on the negative end of these block lists and brand safety issues um, that have kind of been talked about in our industry, especially since the pandemic. The time that this issue came to the forefront of consciousness for publishers was really when it became apparent that advertisers were targeting away from COVID-19 coverage. 
and Salon.com especially was um, covering this actively and frequently throughout the day, all through the pandemic. So we certainly saw um, where our business was potentially uh, at jeopardy of missing out of certain advertiser attention in the open market. It was around that time that we doubled down on efforts in producing content in our food vertical. We had the signal from the readership that suggested after reading a heavy news piece that a more lighthearted, easy to digest article or recipe was often uh, something that they clicked to next. And, and once we saw that pattern emerging, we began to produce more food content that was monetizable for us at a, at a RPM above what news content was clearing at at the time. And having enough of that content in rotation definitely helped to offset some of the pain that we might have felt if we were news only throughout 2020, 2021. That food vertical, if I'm remembering correctly, also kind of helped with uh, your subscriptions business, correct? Like that's come into the fold the past few years. It was definitely a functionality of a, of a food reader more than a news reader to create a running list of um, saved articles, recipes that they wanted to go back to. So we built that functionality into the membership. If you were to uh, even get a free account, you're able to uh, create a reading list of sorts and then have your own um, index of recipes to go back to. So I guess the other side of this too, right, is I'm curious when like Snopes and uh, TV Tropes came into the mix as well, given that they are very different businesses from Salon, from like a, a content or functionality standpoint, um, was that also a goal to try and like diversify different ad categories or how do they kind of fit into the puzzle there? Each of them represent just a strong um, media business in their own right. Uh, one that we saw potential to improve and grow. So TV Tropes was owned already by Chris and Drew, the two fellows who bought Salon.com in, in 2019. So at the time that they acquired the brand um, from the original ownership, they had TV Tropes in place already. And I began to work across both properties uh, at the same time. And then uh, Snopes was acquired at the end of 2022. Got it. Recent addition there then. Yeah. I think it would be a good opportunity to kind of uh, dig into some of the more programmatic techie questions, um, given a lot of our conversations recently have been around some of the strategy shifts that you're doing, some of the uh, very like hands-on changes you're making to how programmatic is sold um, and, and bought across the different brands. Um, and I, they each kind of have a, a different strategy right now that the different brands based on what we've talked about in the past. So definitely want to dive in deep there. So starting with TV tropes, um, how have you been thinking about weaning off a third party cookie, focusing on first party data and testing some of the alternative IDs, identifiers that are on the market presently? Because I think that brand has a unique kind of approach to it right now. I can't answer that question for you, but I, I want to say first that the, it, you're correct to, to look at cookies and identifiers. The, those are the things that initially turned the open market programmatic business away from just focusing on viewability of your ad placements and how many bidders 
you had in your wrapper to really focusing more on the results of other inputs. And in this case, that input was the browser type. The browser type dictated what cookies were going to be present for the advertiser to match on and be able to target that inventory. And starting in 2020, at least when it became massively apparent, we saw a, a, diverge, a, a, a split in the overall yield that a publisher would see with the very same ad stack in Chrome and Safari. And as, as identifiers and, and cookies became less available in Safari, as well as in Firefox, um, CPMs eroded and have continued to erode ever since then. So in the last three years, we have been seeing worse and worse performance in Safari for open market programmatic, and at the same time becoming more and more aware of what's driving that uh, decline, and so that publishers can start to work to, to solve for that. So on TV Tropes, we have the largest amount of authenticated, non-paying users of any of the three businesses. Um, TV Tropes is a, is a wiki at its core. It's an entertainment website, but there are um, frequent and um, high volume amounts of, of user updates to the website. All that gets moderated, but to, to do those um, inputs, to participate in the wiki, users create free accounts. So we have authenticated traffic there, uh, different than we have on news sites where people might be visiting for the first time, finding something in their social media or search feeds um, that don't drive them to become registered members when they when they arrive. And and because of that, we have um, the building block on TV tropes for the current the current path towards solving for cookie deprecation is to authenticate the user first on behalf of the advertiser and help them to make the match where third party cookies are not available to let them do so. So UID2 is a widely adopted identifier that builds upon either a phone number, uh, an email address, or for app folks, uh, MAID. And, and if a publisher can provide that where the browser could not, uh, we have an opportunity to help advertisers find that inventory, see value in that inventory, and buy again where they, they previously had stopped doing so. For UID 2.0, you've said before that that's kind of the predominant um, alternative ID that you're using at this point. And I think the reasoning behind that was quite interesting when we talked about it. would love to kind of talk about your, I guess, walk-up decision to get to that point of really championing UID 2. In the beginning of the cookie-pocalypse uh, cycle, publishers were flooded with identity solutions that were going to help them make up for that cookie loss. And by and large, the the most common thread, the most common question for all of these providers from a publisher is, who is going to be buying against this identifier if I provide it in the bid stream? And in many cases, there wasn't a good answer to that question. It was absolutely a build the supply opportunity so that demand can come use it. Uh, that 
is a really tough pill for most publishers to swallow, especially if they're looking for immediate returns against their uh, development efforts. It, it's, it's not without focus in a product cycle, in a development cycle, to integrate these solutions, to make sure they're working correctly, to make sure that um, you're getting authenticated users that you can use as the inputs to create these identifiers. So the fact that there wasn't uh, a very strong answer of what demand existed on the other side of that identifier has led to, I think, what we see today is many less participants in the field, at least many less who are uh, continuing to, to be above water. But in the case of UID2, we have a uh, major DSP that is backing this technology. We have adoption across other DSPs. Um, and ultimately, an advertiser who is looking to find their audience is going to be uploading their CRM data to one of these DSPs when they begin their campaign. They have a list of folks who have visited their websites, have made purchases with them before, or who they deem to be within their target audience because they've done some research on their own. In any case, those inputs go into the DSP and become the equivalent of what is the demand on the other side of that identifier. It's the answer for publishers to put the work forward, the effort forward into doing this, because there are certain advertisers looking to match against that value. You're currently in this like uh, testing phase of seeing how well UID2 does against your kind of control set, right? Yeah, so there's a couple comparisons that I view as necessary to to make a final clear determination of the uplift here. Um, first is simply comparing the baseline performance of your members uh, versus your guests or your authenticated traffic versus your non-authenticated. Separating those two things in um, reporting is the first step. Then taking the members and applying identifiers to them to see what uh, incremental value is generated against that subset is important. But because you have seasonality and ad spend, you can't necessarily add an identifier in July and say, I saw this much lift over my June business. Um, because the, the active participants in the advertising auction are different in, in both of those time frames. So... Once you have identifiers available to be added to your authenticated traffic, so you're able to do bid enrichment against your authenticated traffic by adding more value about that person into the bid stream, uh, you need to do a, a holdout as well. So 5% um, of the time, let's say, when you have the identifier available to be added, you choose not to do so. And that way you have in real time a comparison of members who could have had the identifier added and how well they perform as a baseline, uh, and then members who have the bid enrichment. So far in your testing phase of this, I guess, what are some initial results you're seeing? Like, are you seeing a, a notable lift in um, ad revenue or even CPM rates? Like, what are the early signs pointing to? The early signs suggest that when the match is made for the advertiser, that there is a higher value um, for that, that member with the uh, UID2 token or, or other identifier. Uh, it's worth noting that um, ID5 and the Trade Desk have also just inked a new uh, agreement. This is, this is relatively current, this week's news. Um, but this is an, another 
strong sign of an identifier in in the marketplace that will be matched uh, on the buy side, will be useful. So initial indication are, are certainly that the value exists when the match can be made for the advertiser. But this kind of does take us into the next phase of improvements for programmatic overall. It's that if we know the user is authenticated and the publisher has done the work of getting an ID token of some kind or another for that person, and we know the likelihood is greater for an advertiser to be able to match that impression opportunity against their CRM data, publishers need to start charging more for that impression. We have been in a mindset as a community that all impression opportunities are sold to all available bidders at the same price, in the same manner. And that competition will be what brings about the correct CPM value for that impression opportunity for the publisher. But that's not really the case because not every impression opportunity is treated equally by the buy side to begin with. We know that there are things such as QPS throttling, queries per second limitation, meaning that not every bid request that a publisher sends is even listened to. And it's possible that high value impression opportunities could be filtered out if the filtering algorithm is not perfectly accurate. So publishers here need to take the opportunity to say, I demand a higher value for this impression opportunity because I've done a lot more than just send this request off into the market. I have messaged and interacted with my user, established a valuable relationship with them, and gotten them to authenticate for your purposes of matching them. I've also done development work to work with identity providers and figure out what the correct identifier is to go against this user before sending the bid request off. So that amount of work and effort on the publisher's part should translate to a higher premium for that impression opportunity. But currently, the way that the pre-bid mechanics work, there's not really something in place that lets you easily do that out of the box. This would be a function that was provided by really smart in-house developer teams or managed service providers today. Uh, I do think, though, that this theme is going to catch fire and we should see more broadly available tools that that speak towards this functionality in the future. And this is something that you're kind of taking upon yourself in-house um, that gets into like that kind of traffic shaping conversation that we had, correct? So you're trying to do some of these things manually in-house to mitigate some of those challenges, right? Absolutely. So the I guess the two sides of um, the situation that lead to the middle here where publishers need to take on traffic shaping efforts of their own um, the, the first coming from the, the evidence that browsers perform differently um, should initially tell publishers that they should treat an impression opportunity in Safari differently than they treat an impression opportunity in Chrome. They are clearly getting different responses from the market for those things, so they should not continue to be sold in the same manner. And then on the other side, um, if the SSPs that publishers send their requests to 
are doing some level of filtering before that request is then passed on to a DSP to buy it, publishers need to get smarter about that as well. Because if we are sending texts that don't get answered up to the buy side, we, we need to curve that behavior. We need to start being smarter about the requests that we make so that we can be better partners to those um, working to represent our inventory for us. Ultimately, if I send more bid requests to an SSP partner that can be won, I become a more profitable publisher partner to my SSP because they no longer have to filter out as many unwinning or unsellable requests from me. And the end goal being to raise the CPMs to represent a premium media offering versus what you were saying before, this kind of like just trying to get the dollar over, you know, a competitor's CPM. Totally. If, if, if we continue to prune in this direction and figure out what bid requests are not worth sending or not worth selling as a publisher, we can incrementally charge more for the ones that are worth doing so. The programmatic approach, open market programmatic approach, especially without other uh, competing media orders on the publisher side with a lack of direct sold business, it means that every impression opportunity is available for the buy side to figure out if it's the right one for them or not. And, and therein uh, is inherently um, a margin that a publisher is giving up if we're selling a really good opportunity at the same starting price as what we should know is a pretty bad opportunity. And given how hands-on this ends up being for someone in-house, like we've talked about your team is very like tech savvy. They're able to kind of do this. Um, I am curious if you're still very focused on open marketplace or if you're building out any direct offerings that kind of uh, like programmatic um, private marketplaces or, you know, uh, I guess like PG sales too, that kind of capitalizes on some of this um, pruning and um, custom like sorting that you're doing already on the tech side? Like, does that kind of lend itself to diversifying uh, programmatic revenue into some of those more direct channels? Without a doubt, as a publisher works towards this pruning effort, you a publisher begins to see what their more valuable uh, inventory is. And so it creates the opportunity for programmatic um, guarantees, for PMPs, or for a private auction to be configured in GAM. Those are definitely short-term wins that I will be capitalizing on. Um, the buyers still exist who want to find the inventory through those channels. But that's not scalable necessarily for the programmatic operation. Uh, it gets you rapidly back into position of managing multiple direct buyer clients, of looking at the spend against each of your deals or PMPs or whatever they may be, finding that they're not spending anymore, needing analytics and follow-up and further sales efforts to get them spending again all of which kind of takes away from the efficiency and the purpose of being a programmatic purist. So while I do intend to satisfy the customers that exist with those desires now in the near term, I do see in 2024 and beyond that 
the programmatic auction will work efficiently enough in the open alone to still sell to those same buyers because the impression opportunities that I put into the open auction will be different than they are today and they'll be pruned to begin with. Okay. So we talked about kind of TV tropes having like a very um, robust set of registered users already or kind of these like known users. Um, Curious about Snopes and Salon as well, how you're kind of thinking about creating a known user base and if that becomes kind of key to this programmatic purist mindset in the coming years, like visualizing, you know, when the third party cookie is finally removed from Chrome entirely. Is that a very big focus? Is it a goal? Or do you think that some of this, you know, shaping, uh, like traffic shaping and, and pruning that you're doing on your end can properly monetize non-registered users or kind of those like guest um, users that come into your domains? I do strongly think that the pruning will result in a greater net benefit to the business than authenticated traffic will uh, over time. But undoubtedly, we will be asking users on Salon and Snopes to create free accounts or to authenticate um, in a much greater volume than we have before uh, because of the findings from, from TV Tropes and seeing the, the benefit against uh, members who have IDs generated against them. So it, it has become increasingly more common for readers across the internet to reach those um, pay gates or reg gates, reg walls that say, you know, thanks for reading. We appreciate you. Please create a free account to continue. Um, I do not expect that we will ever put a hard wall in place where that's not dismissible. But I do intend to ask readers who are frequenting the website um, to let us know who they are by authenticating. There's a few kinds of considerations here, and it gets into the nuance of uh, best authenticating traffic and and what you do with them. And I'm just taking a step back. I do want to say that I think the overall yield in gross dollars to the publisher for these efforts will be lower than in doing traffic shaping um, and better pricing of our inventory and better um, supply path management for our inventory as well. All of those things are priority over the nuance of authentication strategy. But if a publisher did choose to dive into authentication and really want to make the most out of that opportunity pool, um, there are absolutely um, messaging and targeting and logic decisions that have to be made to figure out how to best ask the user and and how to ask which user to give their email address or phone number. I think that for many years, it has only been about providing your email address uh, on a website, a news website. This was also kind of easy to ask for by publishers who had newsletter offerings because you could say, sign up and receive something else that's connected to your email address. We don't just want the email address for the purpose of making this UID2 token. That's kind of going to be hard for a reader to understand. But when you say uh, it helps us to provide more personalized advertising to you and you might be interested in getting this newsletter from us, the offer becomes more compelling. So transparency around phrasing. I think we've talked about this in the past too, especially with looking at how the browser itself impacts how much revenue you can get 
from uh, ad dollars, right? So I think at one point you had said that Safari was one third of what you were making from Chrome. Is that right? And that was, you know, obviously dependent on cookies, third-party cookies. But I believe you said that that was kind of the uh, the breakdown of browser pricing. Yeah, most current figures for a May are 40% of the uh, RPM value of Chrome. Safari is 40% of the RPM value of Chrome. At that point, I think you had mentioned this kind of like transparency uh, phrasing of like telling your readers, you know, if you're visiting us on Safari, we're making less uh, in an effort to get them to either at that point register or move to Chrome, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote a lot of that copy um, and I styled it into uh, blog post format as well as into uh, messaging formats that we could use for in-article widgets or um, chat-styled widgets that would pop up from the bottom of the screen on desktop. And my editor-in-chief, now now chief content officer at Salon, uh, Aaron Keen, correctly pointed out to me that this is way too much information for our readership, that the amount of uh, reasoning that I might share with the Digiday audience is not exactly what's going to be useful or even understood by the readership on Salon. And, and she's absolutely correct about that. Um, and also so much so that I think the same applies to our readership on Snopes, should the messaging be shared there, or even on TV Tropes. Um, getting into the weeds of how the ads are working when someone is at your website to read news content or to get a recipe is wildly distracting. It's not the mindset they're in. It's not information that they want. So um, we have been collectively uh, working on trimming that language down, way, way down, before going um, full scale with it across the website. But in the meantime, there are some uh, simple messages that we can try, just like saying, um, uh, it, it's, it's better if you read us in, in Chrome, without all of the whys or anything else. Hey, thanks, thanks for visiting. We see you're using Safari. Uh, help support our independent journalism by viewing us in Chrome instead. And then we could link out to a why. Um, that goes more in depth into the um, the nature of cookies and, and targeting and all of that. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was interesting having this kind of very transparent um, push around it. And it, it makes a ton of sense why someone coming for, you know, news content might not be even at the point of like fully digesting all of the reasons behind, like just not having that um, mindset or like the, the background behind, you know, ad tech nonsense to begin with. That makes a ton of sense. The, um, I guess, transparency around wording around everything from like registration walls to paywalls. Like I've seen The Guardian just using very transparent wording about like support our journalism. Like your donation is, you know, helpful in, in keeping our journalism going. And, you know, I think a lot of other publishers kind of tested variations of that over the pandemic, especially. You had said something that was interesting a little bit ago about um, this kind of authenticating the audience is not as big of a priority because you see kind of traffic shaping as the better revenue um, opportunity down the line. Is there kind of any indication of how much more like a authenticated user brings in versus like a, a non-authenticated user or like, I guess, can you break down that like revenue opportunity a little bit more clearly? I'm just curious what that kind of translates to. 
even if the monetizable value of an authenticated user was three times that of a non-authenticated user, which it's unlikely to be that much of a lift, truly. Mm-hmm. But even if it were, the amount of users that will actually authenticate is not going to be tremendous. So at best, the publisher might hope to see between 5 to 10% of all of their traffic ever authenticating, maybe. And if that 5 to 10% of the audience is now worth three times more, um, for one thing, you're, not gonna, you're probably not going to sell as many impressions against them either. You're going to sell less impressions at a higher amount. So let's say we're making two times as much money on those people. It's still just a small percentage of the overall inventory that I have available to monetize. Traffic shaping could theoretically make me 25% more against more than half of my audience or more than half of my inventory. So the resulting um, benefit to us overall in total revenue dollars is going to be greater from that traffic shaping. And all of that happens before we have to engage the user really at all. So I do view authenticated traffic as a way to create more premium advertising opportunities. But the very first thing to do is to get rid of the um, bad or unvaluable impression opportunities from what you're selling at all. Bring the total eCPM of all of your inventory up to begin with and then start to authenticate and sell as a premium on top of that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but traffic shaping is partially to do with like uh, supply path optimization and kind of clearing out some of the, I think you called them like intermediaries or, or resellers, right? It's kind of like clearing up the different like funnels into one bid stream. Yeah. So for for programmatic publishers, um, as long as I can remember the wisdom given to us by SSP partners, by the buy side, is that we should be maximizing our bid density in order to maximize demand. And that meant adding reseller lines and it meant duplicating our auctions um, from the client side into different server environments like TAM and OB. At the same time that publishers are putting more and more bid requests for the same opportunity into the bid stream, the buy side is saying, we can't take all this fire hose bid request. We need to start shaping this down. And that's where that QPS throttling and, and uh, bid shading starts to occur on the buy side. So publishers really haven't done ourselves any favor by continuing to make more and more noise, except for a short-term benefit of perhaps punching through that filtering that was happening. If I know that only two out of 10 bid requests that I send make it through to the buy side, perhaps I need to send 30 bid requests instead so that six make it through. Mm-hmm. That's counterintuitive. I'm making the problem worse for the buy side to hopefully get a few more of my impressions listened to. That's the reality of what we created with reseller lines and duplicated auctions in the server. To continue going down that path, I'm calling that unsustainable. We know that there is attention on the carbon footprint results of this type of behavior. All of those additional bid requests have to be processed in a server somewhere 
with some degree of electricity consumption resulting in some uh, grams of CO2 being released into the atmosphere. So there is this like very green minded um, thought for why we shouldn't be doing this anymore. But there is a more compelling reason for publishers to stop behaving in this way. Um, and that is to better value the inventory that we that we have that we should be selling at a premium. Yeah, and um, you know, a couple weeks ago now we had uh, a guest on speaking about supply path optimization and sustainability in the digital ad market, and we talked a, a lot about this exact concept uh, from that kind of like advertiser perspective. And so, speaking to you as a publisher, it's really helpful to see how you're kind of approaching this and taking sustainability into consideration with your overall programmatic uh, selling strategy. I think it's a really helpful way to kind of like look at the other side of the coin and talk about that issue because you're right, it is unsustainable, one from like a revenue perspective, like we see CPMs going down and down and down, but also from an environmental perspective, like the more tech power going into selling one ad impression the more carbon, the worse for the environment overall. So that's really interesting and, and helpful to kind of connect it back to some of the reporting I've done and, and the uh, podcast episode from a few weeks ago as well. And so kind of with your efforts around traffic shaping and supply path optimization and some of these pruning efforts, what is the timeline of that effort? Like you're doing a lot of this in-house, you're doing a lot of this yourself. What does that look like from like a realistic, like I guess, operational perspective? Across April and May, we removed uh, essentially all reseller line items from our major SSP connections. So typically, if you set up a relationship with um, an SSP A, they will give you a direct ads.txt entry for your publisher seat ID and their SSP. And then they will also give you anywhere from five to 10 reseller lines where the impression opportunity that you sent to SSP A is offered by that SSP to other SSPs that you may also have made direct calls to. So we we cut all of that out over the last two months and are now operating with just a single direct line um, in our ads.txt file for each SSP that we call. There are still a few authorized resellers in our ads.txt file because the classification for what is direct and what is reseller is not perfect. We're only actually on ads.txt 1.1 in terms of a standard for this this file. So uh, it's not a perfect science. And in some cases, you have deal curation um, partners such as a uh, Vox Concert who, because of their um, ad server configuration and, and where their orders are entered, they may need a reseller line uh, to enable their deals to flow. The same is true of um, a high-impact vendor like Wonderkind. So there, there are still a few reseller line items in there that speak to the nature of those direct sold deals and how they're facilitated, um, which is a different nature of a reseller line than these auction duplication ones uh, we talked about until now. Well, I guess looking through the rest of this year and again, in this kind of maybe final cookie apocalypse, you know, stage that we're looking at now. What are some, I guess, 
final thoughts about efforts that you're making or where you anticipate this very programmatic focused business of yours to be at? Like, do you anticipate there being a rough patch or a sticky patch that you have to kind of get through? Or do you feel like you've kind of set up a good system now with like what you've been doing on the back end to make sure that transition, that final transition is, you know, not taking a a major hit to revenue or not, you know, impacting profitability margins substantially? Yeah, no doubt about it. These efforts, the pursuit of a better state of programmatic operation come at, at some near-term opportunity cost. Um, if you simply look at the auction duplication example, there is no major penalty that is apparent to a publisher for doing this duplication of calling um, your same bid request in TAM and OB as you do on the client side. So three, uh, three versions of, of just one request that should have gone out. There's no major um penalty for doing so currently. And there is the possibility that your bid request makes it through the um, QPS throttling that's happening. And you have one more monetizable or purchased impression than you may have had if you didn't duplicate. So the choice has to be made to not believe in that approach anymore and to pursue the more premium pruned path towards open market programmatic. I have buy-in from my whole C-suite on that. We have collectively determined that we are stable enough to be able to undergo this effort, and we expect it to pay dividends to us in Q4. Um, this work, this this shaping effort, will certainly have made enough progress, even by September, to be worth it to us. So we've taken a few percentage points, I'm sure, in gross revenue hit in April and May of this year. But um, we expect to make that up and then some by the end of the year. And ultimately, I don't think that um, these ideas or this podcast are going to have many publishers jumping out of their seats to overhaul their programmatic stacks this month. But I I do hope that as we continue to talk about this, that the ideas um, become more familiar. And when I have better findings to share uh, at the end of this year, that I'm speaking about a familiar topic. I'm proving it out to people and helping more people to uh, come along and run their programmatic operations this way come 2024. Got it. Well, thank you so much, Justin, for chatting through all of this and getting very in-depth with what you're doing. It's been super interesting and I'm glad we were finally able to have this conversation on the podcast. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.